the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought it was he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them in its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left them. I'm sure Peter hoped that he would like, stay around for a little while, but when Peter came to himself, he said, now, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he, released, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. I'm going to stop there in verse 12. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word um, this morning. Father, thank you for your word. And now as we look to it, we pray that you would guide and lead our conversation. Father, I pray that we get out of the way. And, um, Lord, let you get all the glory and praise. We'll learn soon that Herod had to learn that lesson the hard way. Uh, We pray, Father, that we would humble ourselves unto you and recognize it's your grace and your mercy that sustains us. So we ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So we're looking at an interesting incident in the life of the church. As you know, on the day of Pentecost, the church had been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to to be heralders of Christ. And throughout Acts chapters 1 through 10, we've seen the gospel spread with internal strife going on and even outside persecution. But the gospel continued to spread. Jesus said, I will, not maybe, I'm thinking about it, I hope it happens, but I will build my church and the gates of hell will not, shall not, cannot prevail against it, right? God made that declaration in advance. If you remember the gospel, if you've been here, the series had spread among the Jews in Jerusalem, the Greek-speaking Jews, then it went to the Samaritans, the half-Jews, and then it went to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, but up to chapter 10, the Gentiles were all considered God-fearers. People who were worshipers of Yahweh as the one true God of Israel was drawing them to himself. But in the second part of chapter 11, as we looked at last week, in the metropolitan city of Syrian Antioch, it's now in southern Turkey, but in that day it was in Syria, the gospel now goes out further to the pagans, the polytheists, the ones who worship multiple gods, the one who really had any, no connection to the one true God, the, the monotheistic, the, the one true God of Israel. And these pagans have come to faith. And the gospel spread, as we saw last week, uh, rapidly and, and numerically. And we noted last week that there were six marks of the church in, in chapters 11, 19 through 30. We said that, number one, this church in Antioch, this pagan multicultural melting pot of, of several different cultures and ethnicity, uh, 
had this evangelism going on, this gospelizing, this sharing of the gospel about Jesus, and there was preaching going on in that city. They were declaring God. They were talking about Jesus. They're having conversations and connecting people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we saw God's powerful hand on this church. The church began to grow. It says that the, uh, many turned to the Lord in that day, verse 21, chapter 11, verse 31, 21. Third, we saw new believers that were taking under the umbrella and and Barnabas comes along, the encourager, the exhorter, comes along to these newly found, you know, people that were just like, gave their life to Christ and and he starts encouraging them and he starts exhorting them. Then we saw how, number four, the strength and the encouraged disciples do what disciples are supposed to do. Witness to others about Christ and this huge energetic evangelism goes on. If there's any model of discipleship that does not have in it mission of Jesus loving people, it's not biblical. It's not just what you get. It's what God wants us to say. So God always calls us in to send us out. If you can remember that, we're the sent ones. We saw that happen. They were encouraged. They were strengthened, and they were sent out. Finally, uh, or fourth, fifth, I should say, a team was assembled. Barnabas is like, you know, he's humble, he, he's an encourager, he's like, I can't really do this teaching in this church, I, I better find somebody who could do really good Bible scholar, and he gets the greatest Bible scholar on the planet, and he gets Paul, he's in Tarsus, he brings him along, and this team develops, and now they got this one-year discipleship program, as leadership development, and, and this church is advancing and moving forward. And then finally, at the end of chapter 11, we see this young metropolitan church serve the mother church because a prophet came along and said there's going to be a worldwide famine and this church in Antioch begins to say, all right, what can we do? Even though the famine's going to affect us, but what can we do to get money and serve the mother church in Jerusalem? How can we serve people even out of poverty? How can we serve people even out of sacrifice? It shows how generous and, and growing this church in Antioch was. And just for a spoiler, just alert, just so you know, the Antioch Church becomes the home base to the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul that begins in chapter 13 in Barnabas. And right here, in between that story and the missionary journeys that start in chapter 13, Luke, the author of the human author of Acts, inserts chapter 12 in his story. He, 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 he takes the church of Antioch, the one that, that God had given birth that was growing, that right before their missionary journey, and he tells this story. And as a Bible person, someone's reading this story, you've got to ask, why would he do that? Why was this story inserted here when Antioch is growing, getting ready to send out the missionaries, and yet they want to give this story of what took place right before Paul sent out? So that's kind of what was on my brain. I'm thinking, why was this here? What is this story telling us? So what this story does for us in chapter 12, it breaks down into four very clear narratives. Okay, number one, you have the death of James in the first couple of verses. Then a long story about the deliverance of Peter. Shorter story of destruction of Herod. And I use that word destruction on purpose. And then finally ends with the declaration of Christ. So that's where we're going. Number one, the death of James. About that time, verse one, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. 
So the chapter begins with about this time, meaning this is the time that took place between the, this Antioch church who sent their financial gift by, the, by Paul and um, Barnabas to the Jerusalem elders. That's where the story ends in chapter 11. So you see the plurality of elders already there. You see the oversight of the elders of the finances of the church. And they send that to the church down in Jerusalem. And according to history, this Herod who, who killed James, um, time period is about 42, 41, 42, 43 A.D. And the Greek in verse 1 where it says Herod laid violent hands on some Christian is a very vivid phrase. He was, he was violently with purpose trying to snatch Christians to violently hurt them. And I read and I study this story this week, and, I, and I, as I, I'm constantly reading this story, one of the themes that, that just kept coming out from this story, kept, God kept just bringing out from the story, was, I believe one of the main reasons it was placed here, was to assure the church then, and, and, and us today, that God is sovereign over life and death. Got that? God is sovereign over life and death. God's sovereignty means that he alone has the rightful authority, the ultimate freedom, the infinite wisdom, and the omnipotent power to bring out everything that he intends to happen for his glory. Okay? God plans, God oversees, God governs all things, clearly in this story and throughout all of Scripture. The story opens with Herod killing the apostle James and ends with God's judgment on the wicked as he strikes down Herod. As if to say, no one will triumph over me. I am the Lord God. I am the sovereign one. I am the one who rules the world. Clearly in chapter 12, this is what, what it's showing us. So with that as the backdrop, let's look at this story. Let, let me tell you first who Herod was. There, you know there are five Herods in the Bible? I had to look up each and every one of them. Because which Herod is this? There's Herod the Great, if you remember. He was, was, he was the, on the throne when Jesus was born. He was the one who murdered all the children and uh, wanted them all slaughtered uh, in Jerusalem, remember? Um, he was the guy who was killed his own family. He was known for murdering his own. Uh, he actually killed his, one of his sons. He wasn't really a, a that great of, of a nice guy, I can tell you that right, right now, right? Killed his own family. Um, he ordered all the killings of the babies, uh, the innocent uh, babies in, at Christ's birth. Then there's Herod, who's mentioned in Matthew 2. He's a short reign, uh, just two years. Nobody liked him. Then there's Herod Antipas. You remember who he was? He was the one that Jesus said, you go tell that fox. Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist head cut off. There's a, there's a line of families of, of some terrible, wicked people. This guy here, though, Herod Agrippa I, was the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas. A- Antipas, I think that's how you say it. His father was murdered by his grandfather, Herod the Great, and when he was younger and his father was killed, he had to flee Rome, excuse me, flee Jerusalem, and he went to Rome and where he was educated. And while he was in Jerusalem, he met this royal family that had to do with Nero and, and, and uh, Julius Caesar and became friends with some of the royal family. So a few years later, he's in a lot of trouble. He finds himself in jail, and one of his friends that he made through this loyal family comes to power and releases him and gives him this, this, this you know, 
reign over these people. So you can see what kind of guy he is. He's in trouble, he's running, he's got some family background. That, that's Herod. That's the Herod we're talking about. Do you know that there are three Jameses in the Bible too? It says here, James. There's James the just. He's the Lord's half-brother. He's the one that's in charge or at least overseeing the church in Jerusalem. At verse 17 of chapter 12, Peter, after his release, says, go tell James and the rest of the apostles. He's talking about him. Jesus' is half-brother. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. He's one of the 12. Who does this James? This is the third James. This is James, John's brother. This is James and John, the son of Zebedee. This is James, whose brother John wrote the gospel according to John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. This is James, who was one of the three of the 12 apostles, one of the three that Jesus drew in closer to him. He was one of the three, Peter and John and James, went to the mountaintop to see the transfiguration of Christ to see the glory of Christ shine in this, in this transfiguration that took place. He was one of the three, Peter and John being the other two, who went into to see the rising of Jairus' daughter. He was one of the three of the inner circle that went, through, went with Jesus, were closer to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, pray for me. It's that James. If you remember, he was the one, or his mother was the one, who said, Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, put my sons, one of your left, one of your right, John and James. And Jesus said, look, I can't grant you that. I can't grant you that, but they will suffer the cup that I am going to drink. In other words, they were going to die a martyrdom. At least he was talking about James there. Now, James dies. He's a young man, possibly in his late 30s. Yet John, his brother, lives till in his 90s. This James could have possibly, from a human perspective, served the Lord another 30, 40, 50 years of useful gospel ministry, yet God takes him. I said God takes him. Even while it's true that at some point during Herod's reign, he decides to go after the church more aggressively and executes James by the sword. In fact, the verb kaku, later violent, is in the infinitive, pointing to a purpose. He laid hands on them to do evil. But what is also very clear, the purposes of Herod are under the sovereign control of God. Our God is sovereign over life, death, and judgment. Even here, as the first apostle is murdered, we see mingled together the wickedness of an evil tyrant and the sovereignty of God who allows this tyrant to operate, but operate only on a leash. It would be of grave error to think that somehow God could not have prevented Herod from his evil deeds. David in the psalmist says this, Why are the nations, Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The king of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And David writes, he, God, who sits in the heaven, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Deuteronomy 32 says, the Lord says, see, now that I myself am he, there is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. Pretty clear. No wicked deed, not even the slaughter of the righteous takes part 
takes place apart from the sovereign will of God. God did not lose control when Herod Antipas lost his mind and, and at, the, at, the, at, the, at the request of his, his wife murders John the Baptist and gives his wife his head on a platter. The whole passage speaks of God's unfathomable, inscrutable sovereignty of God. And God works in mysterious ways. His ways are not our ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. We see this in his sovereignty over death in this story, over life and deliverance in this story, and then over judgment with Herod. And there are a couple of things I just want to point out as we move on about this story, about the killing of James, that we learn. Number one, those who teach... Those who teach that it's always God's will to deliver us from sickness, to deliver us from tragedy and death, are false teachers. They do not teach the whole counsel of God. This must have been a shock to the church. This young, vibrant apostle, John, must have been devastated. I mean, let's let's not lose sight of that. His brother was murdered. Sometimes parents bury their children. Sometimes... Young men, as myself, Barry, Barry, you know, my father, you know, we live in a broken, fallen world. But nothing happens apart from the sovereignty of God. That's why I hate the so-called prosperity gospel. The word of faith teachers that continue their heresy by telling you God will deliver you, you just have to have faith. Really? James didn't have faith? If you are not healed, it's obviously your fault. There is not one shred of evidence that James was killed because of lack of faith or lack of prayer. It'll say later on that they were a fervent prayer for for Peter, but don't tell me they weren't paying for James. Antioch and Jerusalem and the saints, if you read your Bible, were known for their prayers. They were prayer warriors in that day. They're praying, as we'll see in a moment, and I know for sure that they prayed for James as well. Ecclesiastes says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. He's like, I don't understand, but in the end of the book, trust God. R.C. Sproul says, there is, I love R.C. Sproul. He says, There is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign. If he cannot control the tiniest bits of the universe, then we cannot trust him to keep his word. Number two, not only does it say, look, sometimes things happen. Number two, the text tells us that God does not love us less. God does not love us less when he allows or sends tragedy into our lives. We're so quick to say, oh, I must have done something. Now, do we shoot ourselves in the foot sometimes and God has to chastise us in love? Yes. We can all say that in unison because we've all been there. But our tendency, though, is to see hardships and trials and difficulties and say, really, do you love me? Of course he loves us. Of course he loves us. We're called to trust him, to love him, to rest in him, and to rest in his sovereign control. He loved James just as much as he loved Peter. But he allowed James to die and John to mourn Yet he delivers Peter. And he offers no explanation. Maybe, maybe he was teaching the church that no one is dis- indispensable. As a pastor, I have to realize that. This church going on without me. Maybe he was trying to teach them that, you know, trust me more. I don't know. But one thing I can say with assurance, 
God loved James, loves James, and loves Peter the same. And third, we learn from this, as difficult as it is, we need to view death from God's perspective. I know that's hard. I know that's hard. But James was in the presence of the king, in his eternal rest, awaiting the new heavens and the new earth where God will reign and rule and there'll be shalom again. There'll be paradise again. Enter into your joy of the master. From life, brokenness, violence, sorrow, and trials into the place of eternal life. So the death of James at the hand of Herod teaches us that although God is almighty and he is sovereign and he does, he does not prevent the untimely deaths of some of his servants. God is sovereign over death. God is sovereign over life. The deliverance of Peter. What an incredible story. Verses 3 through 19. God does intercede. God does show up in a miraculous way at times. There are stories right here in this room where God did miraculous things in your life. Maybe a healing, maybe averting a car accident, something God does sometimes. But when he doesn't, it doesn't make him less good. I appreciate when people say that. Man, I was spinning a car in a 10-car pileup. 25 people died. I lived. God is good. Like, all right, all right. What do you tell those other people? God's not good? I know you don't mean it that way, but I'm just, in my crazy mind, I think like that. Like, God is good no matter what. Sometimes he delivers, sometimes he doesn't. He's sovereign over life and death. He's sovereign over life and death. And here we see a story. Uh, Herod kill, uh, kills James by the sword, probably chopped his head off. And it gets the rest of the Jewish people very excited. And Herod's a real good politician, so he's thinking, you know what? <laughs> they're really liking me now, so let me grab Peter. And, and although they're celebrating the unleavened bread, he puts Peter in prison. And he's like, let's wait for the feast to be over. The unleavened bread was the feast of um, Passover, connected with unleavened. It's about eight days long. When it's all over, we'll take Peter out, and then we'll kill him too. And, and I'll get a lot of hoorays. Good job, king. So they guard him. Passover. Getting ready to conclude. It says in verse 6 that he was guarded well. And that he was sleeping along two soldiers. It was bound with two chains in a secured prison. It also says that he was guarded by four quads of soldiers. That's 16 men. There are four in each quad at 16 men. And what they used to do in that day is they would change every three hours. Now, some of you know I worked in a New York State prison. And, uh, you know, I know what it's like to need a break in the middle of the night. So they wanted to make sure that they would stay awake. Josephus says, I have a quote from Josephus, uh, that their watch would change every three hours in the night to guarantee that they were alert. So you had four soldiers, two connected to him, two outside the jail, one quad, and every three hours they would change. So he's always guarded by four, chained to two. That happened throughout the time that he was there. You got to ask, how why is this? guy being guarded with such like, you know, we got to make sure he doesn't escape. I, I think maybe some of them probably were like been on a job 10 or 15 years and they remembered about eight years ago. Remember, Peter was in jail twice and the second time he was in jail, the angel came and when he went to look for him, there was nobody there and they're like, where's Peter? Like, he's in the temple. So like, isn't this the guy? You remember back in the day, he reminds me of that guy. They're like, let's put 16 guys on him around the clock. Right? Like, we're not, we're not, we're, we're, we know this guy. 
I don't know how he got out, but let's watch him close. Verse 5 says that there was earnest prayers. Imagine the church, no doubt, praying for James, I'm sure, but then they find out his head is chopped off, and all of a sudden their prayers became earnest. Earnest prayers means to stretch and to strain. They're like their, their prayer life like tripled because of the beheading of James. And I think it's fair to say that when they were praying, it included God's protection, God's strength, maybe an early release, maybe that the king would soften his heart, there'd be lesser punishment, but it's the eve of his death. But whatever it is, whatever they were praying, I'm sure Peter was praying as well, and God shows up miraculously and gives Peter such a sweet sense of peace. Look at verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, Right Now he's chained to two soldiers, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. So Peter, on the eve of having his head cut off, is sound asleep. Now there's got to be a lesson in there somewhere. He's so soundly sleeping that the angel has to come and like bust him upside the head. Literally a heavy blow to wake him. It's like, Peter, wake up. Peter. You know, give him a shot. Peter wakes up, right? You know, never underestimate the work of prayer. Prayer is not only getting help and petitioning for our needs, but rather prayer can also, and I think one of the primary reasons to pray, is to come into the peaceful serenity of God's will for your life. This is what it is. This is what it is. And, and pour it out his heart. He's out like a light. Maybe he knew, you know what, if I get my head cut off, you know what, ultimately Jesus is king. He can't ultimately kill me. It's been done. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all of which Peter was an eyewitness, assured him that death had been swallowed up in victory. His death and the consequences of sin, death, the consequence of sin, was conquered because of Christ, defeated at the cross. And that promises for you today and for me today. In the midst of whatever we may be going through, sin has been defeated No one but God alone ultimately gives life and death. Trusting God, resting in his sovereignty will calm your heart. So Peter finally wakes from a sound sleep. The angel says, look, get up. Chains fell off. The angel said, dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did it, and and go wrap your cloak. You can see him like, 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 what's going on, you know, half naked. He's like, no, get dressed. The Greek form, the, the verbs in that, in that, in that phrase, uh, there, there are three actually that denotes a command, get up, imperative, do it. Urgency, like get dressed, hurry up, let's get out of here. I don't know why the angel was afraid or at least wanted to get out of there quickly. And then uh, a continuation, so he followed him and, and he walked you know, out of the prison, verse 10. They passed the first and the second guard. They got to the iron gate. It opened for them by itself. That's pretty cool. And they went out and went along in one street. Immediately the angel left him, verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know. Man, the Lord sent the angel. He rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting him to get killed. So Peter gets this angelic like escort, pretty cool, and he finally gets outside. He's rubbing his eyes. He's going, What the? Like, what just happened? He's like, No, no, God did that for you. He delivered you. Now, if you remember back in chapter 4 when Peter was arrested and imprisoned, he was warned, don't you tell anybody about Jesus. And what does he do? Goes right back into the temple. In chapter 5, he's arrested again. This time, he's warned, beaten, and flogged. 
Don't you talk about Jesus. Acts chapter 5. They left the presence of the council after being beaten, counting it worthy, worthy to suffer dishonor in the name. And then it says, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Yeah, what does Peter do after this deliverance? You go down to verse 17 and 18 and 19. It says that Peter left. Peter fleed Jerusalem. So why does Peter leave this time? The two times before that, he is back in the temple. In fact, he says in one of, in one of those chapters four or five, whether it's right or not, I don't know. You be the judge, but I cannot stop teaching about Jesus. I'm going into the temple to teach. So why does Peter, the first two times, compelled to go back to the temple, and now this time, he flees? Why is that? I don't know. You guys in community group, you could talk about one of the reasons maybe that might be. I don't know why he did that. But, you know, I would go in and go, ha, ha, you got me again. It's the third time. You think you can get me. Like, he didn't do that. Wisdom told him to leave. Sometimes we stand and fight. Sometimes we, we, we do what we got to do. And sometimes, you know what, there's another day. I don't know why. You guys in community group, as you gather this week, you can talk about that. But the story gets funnier. Look at verse 7 to 12. Do I have verse 12? Yeah, 13, okay. Verse 12. When he realized this, he's out of the gate now, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and they were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's joyce and her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Like, you can't make this up. Like, if you were writing this story, you wouldn't put that in there. That's, this is the word of God. This is the, it tells it like it is. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's an angel. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. How ironic is that, right? They're praying for Peter, obviously not expecting him to be delivered because they don't even believe he's there, and they're still praying for him, and somebody outside the door is going. And they're like, oh, please deliver Peter. Please let him out of jail. Please don't let him be executed like James. Please, please, please. And everybody's looking around going, is somebody going to get that? Mary, it's your house. She's like, yeah, servant girl, go get the door, will you? We're praying right now. You go get the door. So the little servant girl goes over and gets the door. You know, maybe just kind of like, you know, like, don't bother us, we're praying. And when she gets there, she's so excited. She, she hears Peter's voice, she, she forgets to let him in. I don't think they had like those push buttons. It's me, okay, you know, you had to go out there. But she just runs back to the group. And she interrupts the prayer meeting. Hey, guys, stop playing. Peter's at the door. They're like, come on. Please let him out. Please let him out. She don't no, no, really. He's here. Will you stop bothering us? We're praying for Peter. We're trying to see if we'll get escape from jail. He's at the door. Listen, we're praying for him. Leave us alone. Like, it's crazy. You know, sometimes I wonder if when God answers our prayers, we still don't believe it. Here's your answer. Oh, Lord. No, no, here's your answer. Oh, Lord. Yeah, Peter. You know, it's like, it, it, it's crazy, you know. And they're like, it's, it's a guardian angel. It's like, we're going to make stuff up now. We don't really know what it is, so we'll just make stuff up. It's a guardian angel. I can see it now, like, Rhoda, shh, stop interrupting us. We're praying. Don't bother us with the answer we're asking for. <laughs> Finally, you, now, just humor me for a second. Can you imagine Peter? Like, let me in, man, let me in, let me in. I hear the dogs, you know what I mean? Like, they found out I've escaped, let me in, you know. He's probably frustrated at this point. What is going on here? You know, they want to kill me, now my own people are going to kill me. You know, like, let me in. 
So finally, they're in, and he's amazed. They're amazed, like, oh, my word. He says, look, I'm leaving. I'm not staying. And I don't know why, but I'm not taking another chance. I had three, and, and maybe that's where we get that, the, I don't know, three lives. But anyway, he says, I'm out of here. And do you know he really is? Do you know that in Acts chapter 15, there's a brief mention of Peter, but after this story, we don't hear from him no more. So you can't say, oh, well, he spared Peter's life only because Peter had a lot more to do. Well, that's probably true, but that's not what Acts tells us. Peter's gone. The whole rest of the book is about Paul. That's interesting, don't you think? God is simply the sovereign one over life and death. And unfortunately, the poor prison guards, verse 19, Herod puts them to death. I feel bad for them. Worked in, you know what I mean? I've been there before. I didn't let nobody escape. But still, I think it was a little bit of harsh, like, discipline. But they're dead. So you have the deliverance of Peter. This wonderful story that God comes and shows up in a miraculous way. And look at the destruction of Herod. Look at the way he died. That's why I said at verse 20. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's food. On appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because, struck him down because, we got the reason, he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So obviously there was a dispute between Tyre and Sidon, two Phoenician cities on the coast uh, were obviously having troubles and obviously relying upon the king for food. There was probably in Galilee, maybe all the food that they, they got there because they're right on the coast. And there was, there was something going on. So in a political move, they send this guy Blastus, like, look, persuade the king. And it gives the opportunity for this king to, to step up and on his throne and to display this, this authority and glory that he had. And for the delegates, those who came there would just lavish their worship and their accolades on him. This incident, by the way, is described for us in somewhat of a good detail outside the Bible in a book that Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, wrote. Okay, so Steve, uh, Josephus writing what happened, we get to see why it happened, because he gave glory to himself. Josephus doesn't know that, because that's the Spirit of God who told Luke that. But he writes about this story, and he says that Josephus had, uh, excuse me, he said that uh, Herod had gone to Caesarea right after Peter's escape, and while he was there, it says that he, he sat on a throne in Caesarea during a festival day, and he presented himself, he wrote, just Josephus writes, in a theater, Dressed in beautiful robe woven of silver. As Herod moved in the sun, the brilliant flashing of light blinded the people. And they were pleased with his speech. They cried out, the voice of God and not of man. You can see this splendor and this, this glory that he gave to himself. And it says immediately in our text, this twisted king received their worship and immediately the angel struck him. Now, that word struck, interesting word, verse 23, it's the same word used of Peter being struck in the cell. Same Greek word. So the angel comes, I think it was the same angel, strikes Peter for deliverance. The angel comes and strikes Patasso, Herod, and he's dead. God is sovereign over life and death. Herod suffered a terrible death. Luke, Luke's a medical doctor. He says he was eaten by worms. Uh, Josephus says that he had acute pain after this deliverance for about five days, and then he died. Abdominal pain. 
So maybe it takes four or five days for the worms to eat you. I don't know. But it was William Barclay said the pride of man had ended in the wrath of God. It wasn't the praise per se. It was the acceptance of the praise. Herod had received the praise and the, and the worship that God alone is supposed to take and have. It reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar. You know that story? Oh, look at my kingdom, all that I've done by my hand, my majesty, my kingdom. And God strikes him, sends him off into the grass, eating like wild animals until he came to his senses. And, and then he said, you are the most high God. This is your kingdom. You are sovereign. But unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, God did not do that with Herod. His patience had run out and God strikes down, sends judgment on Herod again. We see the sovereignty of God over life and death. The Lord delivered Peter from Herod, and the Lord showed Herod how more powerful he was. God's sovereignty tells us that when James was killed, it was not because the Lord could not deliver him. It was not because he was weak. It was not because he was omnipotent. It was because, among many reasons, I'm sure, Jesus said to James, the cup that I drink, you will also drink. Some bear witness through death, and you know what? Some through life. God can and does deliver, and God can and does also support, supply, and empower us in death, in sickness, in trials, and martyrdom. The point of releasing Peter and not James, allowing Peter to be struck and awakened, and Herod to be struck dead. God is in control. God is sovereign, which brings us to our final point, the declaration of Christ. Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the last summary of the church in Jerusalem. It ends on a positive note. God continues to bless the witness of the Jerusalem church. The apostles and other people in the church had suffered much. Some have died violent deaths, but the word of the Lord continued to grow. That's the preaching of the gospel. The word of the Lord began to grow. And the bottom line is God delivers us from persecution, whether we die for our faith or we must commit ourselves to the furtherance of the gospel. Through life and through death, you see the gospel spreading. God purposed for James to die for the sake of the gospel. He saved Peter and delivered him for the sake of the gospel. This is the purpose, if not of all things, to magnify, to magnify his wisdom and power and spread the fame and majesty and worship of Jesus Christ who saves sinners and glorifies his Father. We see the beginning contrasted with the end. James may have died, but the church is not dead. Much more, the church is now alive. It's continually growing. And the crowds, no matter what they say, no matter how much the opposition of the king, the church of Jesus Christ moves forward. The gospel is being spread. No matter what the futile opposition it, 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 it comes against. And that stage sets us for the last verse, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose also name was Mark. John Piper writes this. Let there be no man-exalting illusion as though mere human beings will be decisive cause in any victory or loss. God alone will have that supreme role. Then he quotes Daniel 2. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You hear that in America? God is sovereign. The president, be it this one, the one after, and the one before, is governed by sovereignty of God. 
We should rest in that. We should vote. We should do what we do. We are responsible for our actions. I'm not, you've heard me preach this before. But he is sovereign over that. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of, of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his hearts to all generations. Sovereignty of God. God's word marches on. Herod cannot stop. God is triumphed. God was sovereign. God is victorious. We don't always understand his ways and his reason, but he wins. His purposes will not be thwarted. And that gives us confidence and that gives us hope. Now, this table before us is a picture and reminder of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary. The bread is the body that was broken. The cup, the juice, is the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. But you know what else this table represents? Give me two more minutes, folks. You know what else this represents? This represents God's sovereignty over life and death. When evil men and evil nations came to do and came together to do their absolute worst, that's murder the Son of God, Jesus Christ, they did not do so while God was asleep. They did not do so while God sat idly by, wishing he could intervene in this horrendous act of murder. No. These men, these nations were doing God's bidding even at the worst moment in history. Acts chapter 4. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you've anointed. But Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, that's everybody, to do, Father, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The worst sin that ever happened was God's predetermined plan. Our salvation was secured on the cross on Calvary's hill under the sovereignty of God, under the sovereign hand of God. God did not just permit Jesus to go to the cross. He purposed it. He did not just allow it. He designed it. He did not just sit back on his throne and watch them beat Jesus, rip the beard, crucify him and say, oh, well, I'm going to let this happen. No. From the foundation of the world, it was God's design to take the suffering of his one and only son and bring about the salvation of your soul and my soul. It was the very purpose of God for Jesus to suffer. It wasn't an accident. You see, all of these things collide at the cross. Grief, suffering, pain is real at the cross. God's in control of every single detail at the cross. Satan is conquered. Jesus rises from the grave. He is risen as king and Lord and Savior. And to everyone who trusts him, he says, as you walk through suffering, as you walk through trials, as you walk through death, it's all going to end one day. I will return. It may be now. It may be 10 years from now. You may suffer for a moment. You may suffer for a long time. But the Bible says it's momentary compared to the, to the salvation that's provided at, for Jesus Christ. There is coming a day the King of kings and the Lord of lords will literally wipe every tear, every sin, every uh, pain and sorrow and sickness. There'll be no more suffering and no more pain. Completely gone. Concluded forever. That guarantee is because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God determined it. God planned it. God foreknew it. And God uh, governed it to happen just the way it happened so that you and I can have our sins forgiven. If that's not enough, I don't know what else is. The trust in the sovereignty of God.
it provided our salvation, which is the greatest need you and I have. I'll tell you that. No matter what pain and suffering you go through, it doesn't compare to eternal damnation in hell. So as we come to the table this morning, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come. Now, it's not a King's Chapel table, it's the Lord's table. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, come today. If you're not, I implore you, trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus alone. Maybe you're going through something right now, and you know what? You've been back and forth, and you just, you know what? You've been holding on to it, letting it go, holding on to it, and now you're coming to the table going, it's yours, Lord. You are sovereign. I will take responsibility of the things I need to do, but so much is out of my control, but it's in your control. You govern the universe. You are control of the universe. I've been playing sovereign one, and it's been killing me. I'll let you be sovereign, and I'll submit. Maybe you're there today, and maybe it's the first time you're going to take communion trusting in Jesus, knowing he died for your sins and rose from the grave. So as the band comes up, we're going to pray together. Come on up, Ben. Father, we are mindful today. And, and, and Lord, I, I, you know I, I don't mean to declare your sovereignty and not recognize the pain and suffering, the arduous situations we go through and minimize that in any way, shape, or form. But Lord, I do want to exalt you. I do want to magnify you. And I do want to share what you have declared in your word, that you are sovereign over life and death and over the entire universe. Nothing is outside of your sovereign will. You are perfect. You are light in you. There is no darkness. And how you hold and govern the universe is not for us to know. But you do it perfectly. You do it holy. You do it apart from sin of yourself. We know that you will bring all things to the conclusion for your purposes and glory and our joy. And Father, we pray as the band sings, as we confess our sins, as we repent of our sins, turning from them, we pray, Father, that our hearts would be in line with you and your will for our lives. And that, Father, things that we hold on to will lay down for your glory and our joy. And now, as we as a family come together, we pray that Christ Jesus will be glorified and we will rest in your good, mighty, sovereign hand. Your love never ceases. We ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.